I have a podcast title. Oh, good, because we need one of those, I'm told. Brandon whinges about movies. Uh, that sounds good. Okay, because we are going to whinge about Rotten Tomatoes today. You know, the first time I ever encountered the word whinge was back when you and I ran Time Wasters Guide. Uh-huh. And somebody in the forum said whinge, and I went into this big rant about how he spelled wine wrong, because I didn't know whinge was a word. Oh, man, Time Wasters Guide. This is tangent already. <laughs> we were ahead of our time because you know how useless influencers try to get free stuff all the time now, <laughs> right? Like, that's a thing that is a big it deal. It is, the choosing beggars of the internet. Yes, all these influencers. We were those influencers in the early 2000s. With the two key caveats that, A, we didn't actually influence anybody, and B... We did, to be fair, actually provide reviews of the products. We did review the products. Photograph ourselves next to them. Yes, we actually use them and stuff. But I don't think a lot of these influencers actually influence anyone either. Well, that's true. All right. So what I have done this week is I, from the last discussion we had, was really curious if there were other films that I thought were classics or excellent movies that deserved more praise than they got. And so what I did is I started looking on Rotten Tomatoes for the Rotten Tomato scores. And of course, Rotten Tomatoes is great and awful at the same time, right? Yeah. Because in one way, it boils everything down to a single number for us, which is super useful. And on the other hand, it boils everything down to a single number, which is enormously reductive <laughs> and a stupid way to determine if a movie is a good movie, right? Yeah. One of the problems with Rotten Tomatoes is that a movie that everyone likes okay We'll score a really high score because if everyone gives a movie a six out of 10 on Rotten Tomatoes, that would be a 100% Rotten Tomatoes score. And if everybody gave the movie a five out of 10, then that is a 0% splat on Rotten Tomatoes, right? Because it counts the number of critics who gave a thumbs up and the number of critics who Mm -hmm. gave a thumbs down. It's a pure pass fail. Yes. And so there is that problem. Usually, I found it's decent, right? It telling me what kind of movie. Well, this and movie and is. especially when you give it the standard twenty percent bump if it's in a genre you like. Yes, exactly. So I have collated a list here. I actually have a top six. It probably should be a top ten, uh, but it's a top six. And the top six is my rating for a movie compared to the Rotten Tomatoes score. And these are the ones that I saw that had the biggest disparity. But we're going to start with the disqualifications. Uh, Disqualification number one uh, is Speed Racer because we already talked about it. (laughs) And that one's super low on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, it's actually not as bad as I remember. It's like a 42% or something like that or or whatnot. But, you know, I love Speed Racer, but Brandon Winch's about Speed Racer should not be the title of this podcast. (laughs) So that one's disqualified. No Speed Racer. No Speed Racer. Also disqualified are all the movies in the above 50%. Like, yes. Their cutoff is 60, yeah. but yeah. But I feel totally happy cutting off anything above 50. I just found a ton in the 50% to 60% range that I thought, this deserves a 7 out of 10, not a 5 out of 10, all right? Mm-hmm. And so it was kind of hard, and it also kept me from going and looking at, like, I wanted movies that were critically panned, in some way that I like, rather than saying Return of the Jedi deserves to be three percentage points higher than it actually is. <laughs> this is a tragedy, right? So it, it, it feels incorrect in some way yeah. to not get into the most ridiculous weeds if we're having yes. this big whingy thing. But So here are some yeah. disqualifications that were on that list that we could still talk about that are disqualified. Knight's Tale, 
59%, which is atrocious. Yes. Knight's Tale is amazing, and yes. Knight's Tale holds up. It does. 20 years later, like, it is I would give Knight's Tale a 9 out of 10. The only complaint I have about Knight's Tale is that I really like the side characters better than I like the main characters. <laughs> but it's a shallow complaint because the main character is kind of vapid jock guy and vapid like queen lady and mm -hmm. they kind of play their vapid roles really well right it's yeah. really well done it's intentional they're playing a jock and a cheerleader essentially <laughs> i could have used a little more depth particularly for her character but nine out of ten so you know i did find myself because we we showed this to our kids a couple months ago mm -hmm. i liked the princess a lot more on this rewatch than i did originally for some reason well here's the thing she's a good match for him yeah like, the blacksmith is a more interesting better character mm -hmm. who is a bad match for the protagonist and so when i was younger i'm like oh he should have gotten together with her Weary. that's because that's who i would have picked <laughs> not who he necessarily would have or should have picked. Right? Now, it's important to point out the blacksmith in mm -hmm. Night's Tale. Yes. That's Laura Fraser. That's John Cleaver's mom in my movie. Oh, wow. Nice, yeah. uh, nice connection there. Yep. All right. So also disqualified, the mummy, Brendan Fraser, 61%. 61. So yeah. barely fresh. Barely fresh. But the mummy is phenomenal. Yeah, mummy's great. That is a fantastic action adventure. What would in you fact, give the one mummy? of the one of the best modern action adventure movies? I yeah. would say it is better than Indiana Jones four by a long shot, right? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, but that's a very that, low bar. A, to that clear. is a low bar. Hardly fair comparison. I am, in general, and we've talked about this in the past, an apologist for Temple of Doom, and I yes. still think Mummy is better than that. Too. Yeah, I would agree. So I sometimes want to talk about how you rank and rate movies, right? I feel like it, it's hard to say on those two because I feel like the different directors achieved what they were trying to do well, right? Mm. A movie I'm going to rate low is one where a director tries to do something and fails or, you know, filmmakers together try to do something and fail. But I like The Mummy better than I like Temple of Doom, even though I am also a Temple of Doom apologist. Yeah. So 61% too low on that. And then the last one that was on my list of how can this be in the 50s is Spaceballs. I know. 56%. What is that doing down at 56? Right, yeah. I mean, yes, it's not the the producers. It's not, you know, Mel Brooks's magnum opus and things like that. And it's not Blazing Saddles, right? But it's fun. And it's, it's dumb. Good. It's really good. It's got yeah. some fantastic jokes in it. Yeah. It, it plays around with the nature of film, which is something that Mel Brooks does in general, but... It's a smarter dumb movie than most dumb movies. Yes. Yes, it definitely is. So there's my list of that disqualification. I have one more disqualification category if you want to hear about it. Okay. I would love to hear about it. This is movies that are legitimately terrible, but don't deserve to be as terrible as they <laughs> are rated, right? So like if something is 30 and you think that maybe it ought no, to no. be a 45, These you're not going to count it? I only have two on this list right now because I'm like, I could go on forever on this list. But these are both lists that are under 5% that really deserve to be in the 30s or 40s, maybe the 20s, right? I uh, would love to hear what these are. So Battlefield Earth is a 3%. <laughs> Battlefield Earth is a bad movie, but Battlefield Earth like does not deserve to be below Manos, The Hands of Fate, right? It just does not. It doesn't deserve that. I have not seen it, so I cannot okay. comment. 
It's a weird movie. Sometime we should just talk about Battlefield Earth because it is bad. I give that, it a two out of ten. That feels like I would have to watch it in yeah. order to do that, which yeah. you don't want to have to do. So. Yeah. The other one is, now this one I will legitimately recommend even though it is bad. Like this is a four out of ten maybe, maybe a three and a half. It's okay. Wagons East, John Candy's last film. Oh. Now, it has John Candy in it. Granted, he didn't finish filming, and so they had to reuse shots of him twice in the film, which is just, I can't believe they had the guts to do that. The same scene they used twice of John Candy, there's a scene where he pours out his alcohol and decides to shape up, and they put it both as the climax of his character and the start of his character, because he died before the film was finished. And you can definitely see they had to do a lot of work there. There are a lot of cringeworthy jokes that do not land. But John Candy is delightful, even in that film, that is a bad film. And I just can't help wanting it to be, okay, like I said, a three out of 10, a three and a half, maybe, if you're being generous. But it's so fascinating to watch them try to finish a film. So if you don't know the premise of the film, it's a bunch of people who went west during pioneer time, not pioneer times, during, mm-hmm. yeah, whatever, pioneer times, yeah, and got there and found out it sucked and decided to <laughs> decided all to go, go the other direction. That's and a pass. delightful premise. It is a great premise. There's like, you know, a scholar guy who's like, uh, I thought I would come out and educate these ruffians, and lo and behold, no, I can't. They used my brilliant <laughs> books that I wanted to sell to them as toilet paper and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And so they are riding east while everyone else is riding west. And like I said, it's not great. But John Candy is great, and he still works in the film. And it's at a 0% on Rotten Tomatoes. That is ridiculous. Yes. So, but that should I, not be there. These are disqualifications because I'm like, it's still a bad movie. You still <laughs> probably don't want to see it unless you're fascinated by the idea of you love John Candy and you want to see a movie that was finished using the same footage twice. Like, that amuses me to no end. Um, <laughs> unless, but... Parts of it are not even good, bad movie because the bad comedy just is excruciating, right? Mm -hmm. Comedy that doesn't land is, you can laugh, really, I can at least, at sincere and and enjoy sincere attempts. Like, my favorite bad movie, I think I've mentioned it before, is the the 1990s Fantastic Four, which I love (laughs) that movie because it was made really cheap by a famously cheap filmmaker to keep the rights, but the actors didn't know, and they tried so hard. And you guys should watch this movie. They try so hard. It is the best Fantastic Four movie by a wide margin, but it also, it's like you feel bad for these poor people who think they are launching a superstardom in the post-Michael Keaton Batman world, and no one has told them that no one's going to see this movie. But anyway. All right. So this brings us to Brandon's list of movies in the 40s or below that he would rate much higher. Much, much higher. Much, much higher. And that deserve, you know, to be legitimately seen by people. And they're rated um, kind of on a scale of by how much of a travesty I think it is. So the bottom few are less of a travesty and the top ones are bigger travesties. Okay. All right. All right. So we're getting increasingly more unjust Yes. as yes. we go through the list. So number six is Waterworld. Well, you are speaking my language because Mm. I am a diehard Waterworld fan. I didn't know that about you. I absolutely am. At the time 
was the most expensive movie ever made yep. and everyone, you know, threw a giant fit about it. Today it wouldn't even crack the no. the news cycle. It's such a good movie. It is an excellent movie. It is a mix of Mad Max, right? Mm-hmm. But in cool ways. Like Mad Max jet skis, that's fun, right? Yeah. But it takes itself just the right amount of serious to be an epic fantasy premise. And it works. Like Kevin Costner sells it. He he thinks he's giving an Oscar-worthy performance. He may or may not be, but he sells that story. Well, and I am going to take it a step further and say, everyone out there who thinks that Brandon and I are insane, you have to find the director's cut that was released on TV a couple of years later. Yeah. Because it adds 20 or 30 minutes, and suddenly everyone has a character arc. I like the movie in the cinemas, but the director's cut is even more superior. Like, when mm-hmm. you get to director's cut, you're like talking 8 out of 10 for me. And, you know, maybe even an 8.5 for that movie, right? Yeah. And, and this is not something that I love, ironically, because it's bad. Mm-hmm. I genuinely enjoy it. No, it's, it's good. It's been added to uh, either Netflix or Prime Video recently, and I'm so excited to be able to show it to my kids. And, you know, it doesn't have incredible characterization, although, like you say, Kevin Costner just sells it as yep. well as he can. But just the visuals of it, the world that it yep. creates, I, it, it tickles me. Favorite delights scenes me. for narrative stuff, like, it opens somewhere, one of the early scenes, I can't remember if it's the first one, it might be the first one, is him working all of this hand-cranked machinery and stuff on his ship. Just, it, it's... It's a lot of effort. It feels like it takes forever. It probably only takes like, you know, a minute and a half or two minutes. But in <laughs> film terms, for someone not speaking and running between these machines and trying to get this thing going, and then a little bit of water comes out of his machine and he drinks it. And specifically, it started yeah. with him peeing into a cup. Oh, yeah, that's what it is. You're right. The, yeah. fir- the opening establishing scene of that movie is him drinking his own purified urine. Yeah, but the way that world builds for us, the fact that, that effort is what you need to go through to get some pure water and he's willing to do it and that they have these mechanisms in place that you can do this unpowered without you know electricity that's just a really brilliant show that shows a ton about the world and gives kind of a tonal promise this world is grungy and dirty and just a really great scene that movie came out my i want to say it was either right before or right after my uh, senior year of high school And then after my freshman year of college, I went down to California with a bunch of friends and we went to Universal Studios and the movie was recent enough and they had invested enough money in it Mm -hmm. that there was this enormous live water world show at Universal Studios. Oh, how was it? Uh, And it was gargantuan and it was so over the top. I noticed you didn't say good. (laughs) Well, because all I remember about it was that, you know, and this was back before digital cameras. So I had a film camera. And I used an entire roll of film just taking cool pictures of the jet skis and the explosions and stuff. And my girlfriend was in one of the shots and she was so mad at me that I blew an entire roll of film on live action water world stunt show. You still have those pictures? I I wish. I don't know where they are. Oh man, that that would be that would be an awesome thing to have uh, listed in the liner notes or Dan's pictures of water world. Dan's pictures. Mm, Man. Yeah. And it was so great because as she was showing me the pictures, I think she was mad because she's the one who paid to got them developed. And she was like, and here's 
another grungy explosion. And here's another grungy explosion. Oh, and here's a grungy explosion with me as human interest. And here we are with another grungy explosion. How old uh, were you? Right after freshman year, so okay. 18, almost 19. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah. That's kind of awesome. Uh, you remember back when taking pictures was a cost? <laughs> you had to think about if you wanted to snap this photo because mm-hmm. it was going to take up one of the few you had on your likely disposable camera at our age back then. And if you were going to have to then pay to get it developed and yeah yeah like this you've only got 24 shots on this roll and it's gonna cost you money to see what any of them look like we have a mutual friend named micah who captain demo from the mistworn books is named after and he's photography major in college and an excellent photographer does did nature photography and i was his lovely assistant on many an occasion that's what he called me because he needed a lovely assistant to carry his camera gear across the deserts of southern utah and I remember the first time I went with him and he had his camera set to, oh, uh, what do they call it in camera terms? It was where you bracket each shot where it'll step it up in light and down in light or aperture or whatnot. You, you take a picture and it takes three shots every time. Oh, okay. oh boy. This, we, I just exposed a bunch of ignorance to the, the camera. I used to know <laughs> what this was called, but it takes three shots. So you have. You were hired because you yeah. were a lovely, not yes. because you yeah, were a yeah, photographer. Yeah, 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 right. I'm. I, I could have uh, I could have starred in Knight's Tale. You say you're saying, <laughs> but it took three shots, and then he was just snapping them like crazy. I'm like, how can you possibly take all these pictures? That's so much film. He's like, yeah, I'll probably fill ten rolls today, and I'm like, ah. yeah, that's crazy. All right, do you have a movie you want to mention, or shall we keep going? And Brandon's let's, list. Let's go five? with your list. Okay. First, because my list is structured a little differently. All right. We'll do my list, and then if we don't get to your list this time, we'll get to your list next time. Okay. Okay. Number five on Brandon's list, in increasing order of how much of a travesty this is, is National Treasure at 46%. Wait, the first National Treasure? First National Treasure. The first National Treasure is wonderful. Yes, it's absolutely wonderful. It shares some themes with The Mummy. I would probably rank the mummy above it, but so did Rotten Tomatoes. Mm-hmm. But it's delightful. I really like Nick Cage. I think Nick Cage is another of those actors that just gives his 100% to roles. And what it allows him to do is elevate B-movies to B-plus movies. And just like when in that film where he's like, we're going to have to steal the Declaration of Independence. You're just on board. You're just like, yes. Yeah. You absolutely <laughs> need to steal the Declaration of Independence, Nick Cage. Let's do it. That's the only possible way to solve this problem. Mm -hmm. And it takes him like 10 minutes. Yep. It's a a lovely little heist. And then there's like hidden words on the back of the Declaration of Independence. It's what I wanted the Da Vinci Code to be when I read the Da Vinci Code. Well, and And wasn't it kind of made in response to the Da Vinci Code? Or am I getting the time wrong? Like, I don't know. I don't know. It, It definitely has that same air of sincere adventuring in the modern world rather than Indiana Jones archaeological adventuring, right? Yeah, my my assumption, and I, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't know what studio executive made what choice. My assumption has always been that it was made because someone was like, the Da Vinci Code, but fun. Right. Let's do this and and make it enjoyable. I mean, 
that was Clive Cussler's entire career, I believe. Yeah. But of course, he being which Sahara is yes. actually oh. rated not nearly as high as it should be. Well, what is Sahara? I don't remember. Sahara? Let me look it up real quick. Yeah, look up Sahara because Sahara is another excellent movie. Matthew McConaughey is one of these actors that we all, myself included, kind of discounted for a long time, despite the fact that he was very watchable and enjoyable. Um, so here's my theory. Do you yes. want to hear it? Yeah. Matthew McConaughey and Nicolas Cage have opposite trajectories as actors oh. going from respectable to ridiculous, uh-huh. and they actually cross at the Sahara National Treasure okay. nexus point. Yeah. Uh, oh. Sahara's a 38%. That's a oh. travesty. That, that, that deserves to be on my list. That can be on your list. Good night. That's probably a... Is that a better film than National Treasure? Probably a... I, no, because okay. I do think Sahara drags a little bit. Okay. And yeah. National Treasure is just more ridiculous than finding a boat in the desert somehow, <laughs> right? And yeah. Okay. That probably would be on my list if I had noticed it. Yeah. All right. Number number four on Brandon's list. Are we ready for this? I am so excited. Equilibrium. Christian Bale. <laughs> it is at 39% on Rotten Tomatoes. And this movie is amazing. It's amazing pulp schlock. But it is amazing. Were you there when uh, we yes, watched it? Yes, for- I was there when Alan made us watch it. I thought it was um, Ben. No, oh, was this, Alan? this was Alan. Okay. Who thinks that it is wonderful. I mm-hmm. Oh, no, it wasn't. It was Ethan Scar's dead. It oh, was Scar. that feels like such a Scar movie. That's of course. Because the, Scar is our friend. He's uh, or Scar. Or maybe from I'm just Bridge remembering because we watched it at his house. No, no, this sounds, that sounds absolutely like a Scar movie because part of why I love Equilibrium is the pulp aspect of it. Mm-hmm. It's just so over the top ridiculous. And Scar tends to take those sorts of things very seriously right (laughs) two movies that did not make my list uh but were in honorable mentions or disqualifications Mm -hmm. was battlefield earth which he took me to see because he saw it and said you need to see this it's better than everyone says and the dungeons and dragons movie oh which is super low which is super low and is kind of bad right like i actually had a list of oh no this movie is actually bad like, there were a bunch that I'm like, oh, I saw, I have fond memories of it. And I remembered I have fond memories because it was bad and I enjoyed it being bad. Mm-hmm. But not that it's, it, it is where it deserves to be. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's a lot of movies that I enjoy despite their being bad. And maybe that's a topic for another yeah, day. Yeah. Rain of Fire was actually on that list of mine. Matthew McConaughey. It's <laughs> at a Rain 42%. And that's probably a good place for it. Mm-hmm. Despite me loving it, that's a... It's a solid rating. You yeah. give it a but 20% bump because it's a genre I love, and it's a 6 out of 10. And, and there you go. And that's um, where it deserves to be. That's where it deserves to land. But let's talk about Equilibrium. Isn't People, Christian Bale also in Reign of Fire? He is. Speaking of oh, Equilibrium. Wow. Intersection of... There yeah. we go. We, it's like we planned this. And they both treat it so seriously. But I'll tell you, the Reign of Fire riff tracks is pretty awesome. Were you there? We watched that. I might have yeah. watched that with you. Mm-hmm. Because I know I've seen Reign of Fire twice, and I can't imagine any other reason why I would have watched it a second time. (laughs) The movie posters for Reign of Fire were one of those things where the marketing was better than the film. Mm -hmm. Because it was like Apache helicopters flying through the air, and dragons. And turns out that that's, I mean, that's kind of, it is military versus dragons, but it is post-apocalyptic military barely keeping their military functioning 
fighting dragons and not quite, you know, yeah. I, I, I really enjoyed the post-apocalyptic part of it. Mm-hmm. Speaking of Matthew McConaughey, watch Reign of Fire solely for the shot of him leaping off of like a grain silo with two axes ready to just murder a dragon a castle right even. up close or fortifications something for, like yeah. that mm-hmm. he's yeah. like i'm gonna kill this thing with my bare hands and then a genius you know. scene that's how the, it is a genius subversion of expectations by playing into actual what should happen i, I like that but there's one actual I'm joking about that scene. Like, it's fun, but it's camp fun. Mm-hmm. There's one legitimately brilliant scene, and that is the Star Wars retelling. Oh, you yes. That? Yes. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. what makes me love post-apocalypse, yeah. is when they do that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. When yeah. they are equating, you know, Star Wars with the Epic of Gilgamesh or yes. Ansel and Gretel, or this is the kind of story that our culture is going to tell its grandchildren mm-hmm. around the campfire in 200 years after the zombies have risen. There's a ton of those in the Skyward series, my YA series, because it's far future and scions of Earth and remembering, and just that mm. all of those stories are in some way inspired by watching Reign of Fire <laughs> and being like, wow, that's a really great way to world build and to build a connection between us and the characters at the same time puts me right in this place understanding that my time has become lore and mythology to their time because of you know loss of technology and things well and that's such a better way of doing it you know as much as i love orville i don't know if you ever watched the tv show orville because you don't like tv shows i don't really like and that's fine but orville and many many others like it babylon 5 did the same thing the people in the future whenever the writers want to wink wink look pop culture they'll have people watching old stuff. And it's always from the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and that's it. Like, those are the only decades that matter to the future, which calls attention to itself as an untenable gimmick because of how specific it is. Mm -hmm. Nobody ever looks back at the thing from our past that none of the audience remembers. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Oh, what was it? Bill and Ted? Was It it was Bill and Ted 2, which is really great. We should talk about Bill and Ted sometime. But... In Bill and Ted 2, they have their great musician come. They're doing a, a class at the beginning of it. If you haven't seen it, what's going on is the future people are doing a class on great like musicians from the past. Mm-hmm. And they bring forward several musicians that you know weren't in the first film. So I think Beethoven was the first one filmed. So they get Bach and they get someone else. And they actually subvert this trope by getting someone past us who does you know some weird atonal thing. Uh, but the person they get from our time is like, the lead singer of White Stake or something like that. Like, it's whoever they could get to be in their film. Uh, Adam, awesome. look up who that actually is playing himself. Like, I don't think it's actually the lead singer, but they're like, and the great musician, they don't get Michael Jackson because he wouldn't be in their film, mm-hmm. right? They, they, they don't get Billy Joel. They bring forward the lead singer of Winger, the great musician. <laughs> the from, greatest musician yeah. of the late 80s who would yes. consent to be in our movie. <laughs> yeah. And it, it's always just made me laugh because even as a kid watching the movie, I'm like, oh, that's 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 all you could get, huh? Okay, <laughs> that's who you could get uh, for your movie. At least I recognize the name of the band. Mm-hmm. So, you know, but they probably would have been better off getting some indie darling who would be willing to be in the film, right? Yeah, who, it that, wouldn't have cost you much to get who wouldn't have cost movie. you much. And then they went on to become later known as one of the formative people of this, you know, 
but no, it's Bill and Ted, so they get like whatever. <laughs> well, they you know, had to get a rocker of yeah, some kind. The drummer of Twisted Sister or something like that. You know, it's, it's whoever they can get. Oh, we haven't man. even talked about Equilibrium. No, so Equilibrium, Equilibrium is dystopian, and it clearly has delusions of real SF dystopian 1984 yes. thought police, but so quickly loses all of that underneath these ridiculous action sequences. Yes. Gun katas. <laughs> Gun katas. So here's, here's, yeah, here's what you got to know. It's emotion is illegal. Yes. Having emotions to feel things. You can't feel things, which is actually a really great dystopian premise. Mm -hmm. If they hadn't used it, I could see an entire YA series. I mean, in a, in some ways, you could even I'm argue sure that the there giver is a YA is, series out there where is a little bit like that. Illegal. But yeah, emotions are illegal. You I mean, that was to... delirium. You're not. No one's allowed to be in love. Right. By Lauren Oliver. The fact that emotion is illegal, of course, means that everyone takes a pill so that it suppresses yeah. their emotions. And there is a genuinely moving scene where the guy encounters, because, you know, similar to like Fahrenheit 451, people go around burning books and stuff. Yep. But in this, they and burn. They, they burn all kinds of art. Yeah. And he finds an old recording of, I want to say, Beethoven and plays it on like an old Victrola, because it's all that survived the purge, and hears music for the first time in his life. And it's incredibly well done. It's a really good scene. Yeah. Some good, like, good yeah. premise, and it's Christian Bale. Like, you're noticing a theme in these, these <laughs> films that they are people who give great performances, even if perhaps the subject matter and film doesn't rise to their performance. Perhaps. Yes. So you're, you're seeing what I like, and I really like people who take chances. Waterworld, one of the cool things is, is there was a ton put into that film. You can say it's Mad Max on water, but the world building is so much more than that, and the lore is so much more, and they, mm -hmm. it's doing Avatar, right? The, not the airbender, but, you know, something like yeah. that. You know, I really like it when films try things like this. In Equilibrium, I really like that they're like, you know what? This is pre-Hunger Games. This is before Dystopian hit its stride again, and, it, mm -hmm. and whatever echoes of pop culture resuscitation happen, and these sort of cycles and whatnot... And they're like, we're going we're gonna to make 1984. We're do this. Now, it was, if I remember, pretty concurrent within a year or so of V for Vendetta. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Which I don't know if that has any bearing on anything. Hollywood is very notoriously uh, yep. doubles premises between studios all the time. Yeah. But then they said, you know, 1984 needs gun us. <laughs> what is a gun kata, you may ask me, dear listener? Well, gun kata is martial arts you perform with guns, not by hitting people with the guns. You just do a, some really cool katas, and you are trained to fire your guns at just the right time. And if you go through these katas, you'll just hit everybody, even mm -hmm. though you're not looking. Yeah. Because, you know. Because it's like all about the, the probability of yes. where the attackers are going to mm -hmm. be. Human movement is deterministic, and if you follow these patterns, you will get them. And there is legitimately some awesome action. Like, there is a scene where Christian Bale kicks down a door into a dark room, completely pitch black, lands on the door in the darkness, and all you see are the muzzle flashes of his guns as he does gun katas, and then the lights come on and everybody's dead. <laughs> and it's... It's a great action scene. Well, and they... I love how much they lean into the premise of this, like, deterministic gunfight mm -hmm. my favorite fight scene in it is one where he goes in and he rolls two yes. gun magazines across the floor and they're weighted so that they're standing up mm -hmm. and 
then he goes through, you know, running around. Let's the lobby scene from the Matrix, very obviously being yes. name dropped. Mm-hmm. And then he runs out of bullets and he is standing directly next to the two little yep. things that he threw out because he knew exactly where he yeah. would be when he would run out of bullets. And so he's able to just pop the magazines out and stick the guns down on the other ones and keep going. It's the lobby scene for the Matrix, except instead of walking on walls, he's doing yoga. It's true. <laughs> he's just walking down the, the hallway, waving his arms yes, he is. and doing yoga and firing his guns every time he makes a yoga pose. I love this film. I don't like it as much as you do, but I do remember it fondly. And where is it on Rotten Tomatoes? Uh, it was like a 40-some. 40 40-something? 40, let me see. Yeah, that um, feels too low for 39, equilibrium. 39% for equilibrium. Mm-hmm. Now, if I have to say, is this a legitimately great film? Like, Night's Tale, I think, is legitimately great. Mm-hmm. The things it is doing Agreed. are are really cool. It's, it's doing new things with cinema. But this gun caught a stuff. Maybe I'm stretching too far. This is Brandon Winge's about movies. <laughs> but if you look at it, gun caught a stuff works because everybody has had the emotion and love of art ripped out of their life and they've become mechanical robots and so they will follow these patterns they are deterministic because they no longer have emotions and it actually fits the theme that gun kata's work now is that a point that the movie ever makes no no okay that's that's fine but you know the director uses gun katas in his next two films i believe and they are much worse and didn't strike in the same way as equilibrium did despite trying very hard. And I've been trying to think of the movie that visually reminds me of Equilibrium, and it's Gattaca. Yeah, okay, the color palette and the grading and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, and You're like right. the, the super slick haircuts and everything. Yep. But Gattaca is like a 10 out of 10 film, like legitimate piece of art. Mm-hmm. And this is a camp action film that Brandon likes. <laughs> well, and that's, different that's the thing, is like if you take... The Matrix and Gattaca and mash them and together. mash them together into yeah. a slightly worse movie than either of its originals. You end up with Equilibrium, yeah. and so just because you like its parents, it's worth checking mm. it out. Yes. All right, number three. We're into the the hallowed number three. Okay. This is going to be a controversial pick. I think this is Kung Pao Enter the Fist. <laughs> okay. 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 Which right off the bat we know this is a, a genuinely awful movie that is immensely enjoyable it's not genuinely awful it is secret genius okay if you haven't seen kung pao enter the fist it's a 13 percent on rotten tomatoes and there is one scene that is a 13 percent or lower and it's he fights a cow scene it was in all the trailers it's terrible it is bad cgi Mm -hmm. it is it is it is almost it doesn't ruin the movie but you just skip that part it's odin kirk but it's not it's not the breaking bad odin kirk it's the other odin kirk so he bought the rights to a kung fu film, a Hong Kong kung fu film, bought the, the distribution rights, and then he Forrest Gump photoshopped himself into all the scenes and changed the story and recorded new dialogue. Steve, Steve Odenkirk. Steve Odenkirk. Yes. And this one actually is not a better film than the others on my list, but it has the biggest disparity, which is why... It's number three. It probably should be lower on my list because I would probably give it like a six and a half, maybe a seven. And it's a 13. It just had a huge gap 
which is mm -hmm. why I put it higher on my list. The people are going to be laughing at me the, now. But uh, the Rotten Tomatoes critics consensus is a short sketches worth of jokes stretched into a full length feature, which is about what I remember. I really like interesting, innovative filmmaking. And the idea of photoshopping yourself into an entire movie and changing the storyline entirely. I mean, Woody Allen did one of these two. And I actually, yeah. I really like What's Up Tiger Lily also uh, for that same reason. And so maybe this is like one of those things Brandon really likes that lots of people don't. But not like when I saw the trailers for it, I was not interested in this film at all. It looked like a scary movie type bad spoof, mm -hmm. right? And then I discovered the story of it. And then I watched it fascinated the entire time, laughing at some of the legitimately funny jokes and just being amused and amazed by the idea that he cut himself into this entire movie. Yeah. It, it is just so much fun to me. <laughs> okay, there are some cringe level jokes. There are definitely, and there are definitely some, hey, this was made in the 90s or early 2000s when movie humor equates to look at dumb thing, right? Yeah. It is less problematic than What's Up Tiger Lily is. Yes. But I do think that the way that it is taking a movie specifically from a different culture. Yes. And shopping himself it, in as a white savior figure. Yeah, yes. Makes there's, it really There's fraught. definitely some things there for sure. But, oh man, one of my favorite comedy scenes of all time is in this movie. And it's where the old master is walking with Steve Odenkirk. And there's like a guy doing martial arts and the master's like, uh, ignore him. We trained him wrong on purpose as a joke. <laughs> and that one has stuck in my head all along. Just the, the framing of it, the beats of it and how it works. It's my favorite joke from the film. The cow scene is terrible. Just, <laughs> just awful. And scenes with the love interest that I think he wrote in and also filmed into the film are also pretty bad. But the scenes where it's just... He's there and it's Forrest Gump and a Kung Fu movie is happening and, and, and Steve Odenkirk is just there are, are delightful. All right, moving on to number two. Number three is my controversial choice. That's my, that's my <laughs> hot take. I don't think this one will be as hot a take, but it is, I think, a movie people dislike that I love, and that is Hook. Hook? Hook. 26% on oh, Rotten man. Tomatoes. Okay, and I, I'm going to assume that your controversial take is that it is too high and should be so much lower. <laughs> I really like Hook. Uh, I don't understand I people was, who like I Hook. I was hoping for one that you would dislike. Oh, my word. Why, uh, why I like Hook. Robin Williams. I really like Robin Williams mm -hmm. in the right role. Dustin Hoffman, right? And I love the premise, and I actually really like just how it's acted. I was shocked when I found out that people didn't like this film. Because I thought it was well-beloved by the entire community. Like, I loved it. See, when um, I was going through making my list, mm -hmm. I was delighted to find it as low as it was. And mm. thought, oh good, other people hate this dumb movie too. The main reason I don't like it is because it has like 80 different emotional climaxes that are all filmed with more or less the same level of awe-inspiring music and wide Have puppy dog eyes. I'm, ex I'm exaggerating. But you but earn yours. That's you, different. You read the books back when they were bad, and I did that. Elantris had that. It had like five different emotional climaxes, and I had cut like three of them after my agent's like, this is really a bad idea. So I can, <laughs> I can see that, 
but I just I just still love but, it. And so many people do. No, um, they don't. It's a 26%, and I think the audience yeah, but, score but, is but, bad but too, the, right? Well, let's look it up, yeah, because we'll, I know that the lists we were probably both looking at are specifically the critic lists. Yes, I, this is the critic list. It was a notorious flop. Maybe people love it now. Maybe, maybe I'm not. Because number one on my list, I know, is going to be a non-controversial hot take that indeed is going to be the hot take that everyone listening that to this everyone is, is to like wait what yeah okay oh i'm excited to see that one mm-hmm. audience score for hook is 76 percent. okay okay so it is not as gigantic hot a disparity as... everyone loves this awful movie <laughs> it's not awful it's great you know there's that moment in a movie mm-hmm. where kind of everything comes together and the emotions are strong and the music swells and we have this kind of heartfelt realization that something important has happened and now we can move on and usually there's like maybe two of those and Hook seriously has 25. Yeah, okay, that's one thing wrong with it. I listed three things that are great about it. <laughs> Can you what what else? What else is wrong with this film? Uh, it's just dumb. So is Equilibrium Kung Pao National Treasure. <laughs> maybe Waterworld. I I remember the the scene where the parents come home mm-hmm. and they find the hook mark scratched into the wall. That's a great scene. I am not gonna. Mm-hmm. I'm not gonna say that it's not. But the movie for me is just unwatchable because of how self-important it is. It definitely is self-important. They they really did think they were making something that would become like Wizard of Oz level, mm-hmm. right? And I think everyone who makes a Peter Pan yes. does that. Yes, there's this kind of weight of nostalgia and belovedness that peter pan just can't escape from and it is always pretentious very pretentious yeah that's a good word for which it. is a really odd thing to think about because i will absolutely agree that hook is pretentious <laughs> right as pretentious as a film with robin williams in the pre robin williams takes a serious turn era right because mm-hmm. i think this is Maybe it's not before Dead Poets. Kind of in the middle of it. I don't know if it was before Dead Poets. It was definitely after Awakenings. Okay, yeah, you're right. Yeah. All right, we're going to move on. We're going to end this episode with Brandon's number one. We're going to do Dan's list uh, next time. All right. What is your number one? The non-controversial. Non-controversial. It's Three Amigos. Three Amigos is somehow a 45% on Rotten Tomatoes. I wish that I had drunk some water so I could spit it all over my iPad again. That's horrible. Like, of all, none of these movies that I've listed, except Knight's Tale. Knight's Tale, I give a 10. I would give Three Amigos a 10 also. Now, again, I, I want... Maybe, maybe a 9, but, oh, it would be so close. I feel like, though that's an interesting thing. We're going to have to do a podcast. Sometime we'll do a podcast on this. People love to say, it's not a perfect movie, but... And that <laughs> phrase has started to really dig into me. Because I'm mm-hmm. like, what does it mean to be a perfect movie? Three Amigos is, to me... A perfect movie. It is trying to do what it does at every every point and every moment is contributing to achieving what it's trying to achieve, and it does it just so well. Well, and it doesn't waste anything. Mm-hmm. Even the weird little side things, like when they go on their fantasy quest and it yes. lasts like two minutes, mm-hmm. and you think, well, that didn't go anywhere, but it's so perfect even though it is a weird dead end that doesn't go anywhere it marks the transition from the real world into the fantasy land yeah and you could even argue that everything after that is happening in their heads because (laughs) it's where things go right for them 
it's a delightful little moment of transition. I love it. Yeah. This is English major stuff. I'll try to get off of that. No, no. Uh, but, I think that's, I suspect that weird English major stuff yes. applied to Three Amigos is probably why people are listening to this. Even like if you want to say as a kid, the turtle saying goodnight, Ned, at the end of that surreal mm-hmm. little moment was the biggest laugh that I gave the entire film as a kid. <laughs> the talking turtle, for whatever reason. Frankly, it calls into question the integrity of Rotten Tomatoes as yes. an institution that this is only a 45 because yes. it is at least, I don't know if I'd give it perfect, but 95. The whole My Little Buttercup scene in the bar oh, so good. rarely has a comedic scene ever been so flawless. Mm-hmm. And yep. my, with, my money- with the payoff at the end when the other guys come in. Yeah. And, right? Oh, and then we don't see exactly what happens, but yeah. we know it's going to be awful. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, no. The, they I, go in first, and then these guys... Yeah, sorry. The, the, it's a payoff to a joke yeah. that was set up, is what mm-hmm. I mean. Yeah. Maybe the funniest line that has ever been written for a comedy is, so, old woman, so like the wind. I don't know why that is as funny to me as it is. So, But that's hilarious. Rather than just, like, quote, cool lines, though, I want to talk <laughs> about, like, this film, because I love it, and I think that... People disregard comedies as all being the same, particularly this kind of comedy, which has a mix of slapstick and a Mm -hmm. mix of old vaudeville and a mix of wordplay. And that's why we lost these films, right? This is why we don't have Airplane getting made anymore and we don't have Three Amigos getting made anymore is because this level of genius in comedies... Yeah. I'm going to argue with uh, Three Amigos not getting made anymore because... Off the top of my head, Bugs Life and Galaxy Quest. How old are those? Those are both films that, from the that's 90s. That's true. That's true. The, those um, predate the, we are going to do references with slapstick instead of jokes with slapstick as our comedic film. You know, you mentioned earlier the scary movie franchise, and yep. I, maybe this is unfair, but I credit that group and those movies for kind of killing the stupid funny movie genre that used to be so smart mm-hmm. and then stopped being smart and we had the whole row of spoof movies yep you know not another teen movie is actually pretty good but like disaster movie scary movie all of those they fall into that trap you mentioned of here's something gross laugh at it or here is a thing you've seen before that's going to substitute for a joke because I am yeah. not clever enough to write a, a joke. And so, whereas we used to have this really brilliant stuff, like one of the things that I love about Three Amigos is after I moved to Mexico and learned Spanish and came back and watched Three Amigos again, there's a lot of Spanish in it and it's really good. And somebody took the time, and maybe it was just the actors, to like, try to make this feel real so let's compare your favorite line of that to why i think that these kind of spoof movies just are kind of so they will just say um now we're imitating the scene from titanic where someone is standing and says i'm the king of the world and it's Mm -hmm. a thing you recognize and it's funny because the guy does it maybe in a little goofy way yeah um now what makes your line work so well is this is also a reference to many scenes you've seen before and someone needs to use their skills in a way, you know, that is is going to save the day. 
but it's ridiculous because she's sewing a costume, a Three Amigos costume, which is goofy and dumb, but they are treating it seriously. So the joke is, hey, you know, all of the stuff you've seen before, we are inverting it. We are playing with it. We're Mm -hmm. lovingly teasing at it in a way that you get to put together and the actors are playing it serious. The Three Amigos works because the actors play it serious the entire time. Same reason that a lot of that era of comedy worked. Top Secret and Airplane and Police Squad, which is stronger than the Naked Gun films, Mm -hmm. the television show was, and this one all are in the same sort of category of, we are going to take our comedy seriously and... They're just outrageous. Yeah, well, funny. I mean, and that was Leslie Nielsen's entire career. Yeah. Well, it wasn't because he's in Forbidden Planet, <laughs> which I actually happen to really like. I didn't. Have you seen Forbidden Planet? I have. Yeah. Years and years ago. Yeah. I don't remember it well. It's The Tempest, Shakespeare's The Tempest, yeah. as yeah. a science fiction film starring a young, I believe it's Leslie Nielsen. I could be wrong on this. If so, I apologize. But playing a straight role as the heroic captain. Well, and, then, and, and that's who he was, yes. which is why he got into Airplane. Yes. But mm-hmm. since we're talking about Airplane, yes. I want to point out another one from that, a joke from that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, let's let's use the Titanic example. Yes. Because that is something that gets that shows up in a lot of these yep. spoof movies is, look, you've seen this scene in Titanic. We're doing the same thing. Ha, ha, ha. Yep. And Airplane does that, but it does it in a different way. So, for example, there's a scene early on when the flight attendants are handing out coffee and a guy takes a second cup and his wife thinks, oh, John never has a second cup of coffee at home, which was just a direct reference to a popular coffee commercial from the 70s. That was the joke. And then later, when everyone in the movie gets sick, the husband ate the fish and so he starts dying and he throws up twice and his wife goes, oh, John never throws up twice at home. And that's what makes it funny, is the yep. ability to do something more than just a straight reference to a thing you've already seen. So, what are we going to call the podcast? Do you have any guesses? Oh, or gosh. Any suggestions this week? Um, well, Brandon has whinged about movies, so at least this is accurate. But next week is going to be uh, Dan whining about movies, so um, I don't know. Waterworld doesn't suck, the podcast. Waterworld doesn't suck the podcast.